You may not know this about me, but I have a semi-famous brother. I say semi-famous because um, he's not famous in big cities like Portland, but he's famous in little towns all across America because he is a magician. Or actually, he likes to call himself an illusionist. He likes to make things appear and disappear. He does wild acts of escape. Um, He travels all over the country with his family. He's had this, this has been his life's work. And he um, puts on a show that is very family-oriented. It is, uh, he, he... has tigers, and so he introduces people to his tigers, and he talks about tiger conservation around the world. And um, he does a show that's really beautiful. He, in his show, he reawakens kind of the wonder of miracles, and he talks about his faith, and he also talks about um, some of the sorrow that has been in the backdrop of his life. His beloved wife, Susan, died at the age of 42 and left him a widower, raising his four children. And he talks about God's grace and how that grace meets him and how life is still full of wonder and miracles. He really touches hearts with his show. Well, in the spring, he performed in Salem. And he was at the Elsinore Theater in Salem. So I gathered some of my friends and my family, and we went down and we saw a show, and it was great. It was a wonderful evening. I was so proud of him. And when we were lingering in the lobby afterwards, um, everyone was lined up to get his autograph. And they were hoping the tigers would come out and make an appearance because he has baby tigers. And they were, they were young still in the spring. And so everyone was hoping the tigers would come out. And I was lingering, waiting for him to get done so I could talk to him. And as people were lined up to get his autograph, I would walk up and go, Hi, I'm Marianne. I'm Jay's sister. (laughs) I was like, ashamedly so proud. I couldn't wait to introduce myself. Because you know what? He only has one sibling, and it's me. And I'm his big sister, nonetheless. And so I found myself just glowing with pride. Hi, I'm Jay's sister. It was so exciting. That's not how James, though, started his letter. You know, James, the letter, he is the half-brother of Jesus. He never includes that in his letter at all. He never tells us that he's the half-brother of Jesus. Don't you think if you were the half-sister of Jesus, you would make sure everybody knew? You'd be like, hi, I'm Marianne. I'm the half-sister of Jesus. You know, Jesus, the miracle maker, creator of the universe, the word of God. Wouldn't you want everybody to know that Jesus was your half-brother? And that is not at all how James introduces himself. He doesn't even tell us throughout the entire book that he is the half-brother of Jesus. James is obviously a much more humble person than me, and I'm suspecting you. But we're going to have some fun jumping into James today and getting to know a little bit of the background. Who is this guy? What did he believe, and what does he want us to know in his story? Those are the three questions we're going to talk about. Who is James? What did he believe? And what did James want us to know? Let's talk about, first of all, who is James? Well, it's interesting because James is kind of like the name Mary. You know, in the Bible, there are so many Marys, we can hardly keep them straight. James is another really popular name. There's a lot of James in the Bible. And James is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Jacob. 
And so it seems as though it was the kind of name that, that parents wanted to name their sons in hopes that their son too would grow up to be a great man of faith like many of the Old Testament patriarchs, men of faith in the, in the early days. Kind of like when I was growing up, everyone was naming their kids Matthew, John, Peter, my brother Jay, his real name is John, his sons are Peter and John. You know, you probably have Matthews and Marks. Parents used to name their kids good Christian names, hoping they grew up to be men of great faith, right? That's how it was in, in the days that James lived. Um, but it's important for us to distinguish exactly who is the author of this letter, since there are so many James in the New Testament. So let me tell, take you through a couple of options. First, there's James, the father of Judas. Now, this is not Judas Iscariot. This is from Luke 6.16. Luke is going through a list of the disciples, and when he mis- mentions this James, he wants to identify him that this is not Judas Iscariot, the traitor, he's saying, this is, you know, James, this is Judas, whose father is James. So he uses the father's name to identify this Judas. And so we, though, know that this James, the father of the disciple Judas, we're not, we don't hear about him anywhere else in scripture. So we know he wasn't a prominent enough figure to have written the book of James. So we don't, we don't think he was the guy. But then there's James, who's called son of Zebedee, brother of John. Now, this is the guy that many of us might think was James, because this is the guy we know so much about. Remember when Jesus went by the Sea of Galilee and he called those fishermen? He said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fisher of men. And it was James and his brother John. James and John are seen all through Scripture. They're the, James, John, and Peter are the three closest relationships that Jesus has. He has the 12 disciples, but the most intimate, miraculous times of his life, it's James, John, and Peter with Jesus, like the Mount of Transfiguration. It was James, John, and Peter who saw Jesus transformed, the veil of his glory being transformed at the Mount of Transfiguration. It was James, John, and Peter who were in the Garden of Gethsemane who were told to pray as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross. James, John, and Peter are the ones who saw so many of the miracles that Jesus um, performed in his earthly life. And so we might think that that was the James. James and John, they were called sons of thunder because they were so impulsive. They both were regarded as sort of feisty characters. We might think that was the James. But interestingly, that James was killed by the sword in 44 A.D., And the book of James was actually written sometime between 45 and 49 AD. So we know it couldn't have been him. He wasn't alive when this book was written. Well, there's another James, and this James is mentioned as son of Alphaeus. And there's another James that's mentioned that's called James the Younger or James the Lesser. Scholars think this is the same James because when he's called James the son of Alphaeus, he's being being identified by the name of his father, But when he's called James the Younger or James the Lesser, he's being identified with his mother. And they think that Alphaeus and his mother Mary were married, and this is the same James. That's that's what is believed to be. So um, we know that when Jesus was at the cross, there are several Marys at the cross. And um, Mary, there's Mary Magdalene who's identified, and then there's Mary who's identified purely as Mary, mother of James the Younger. So we think that's the same person. But there's no indication that he would have written the letter. We don't know very much about him. 
But then there's James, the son of Joseph and Mary, half-brother of Jesus, which we see in Matthew and Mark. We learn that Jesus had brothers, and we know that he had sisters. His sisters aren't mentioned by name, but his brothers are. In Matthew 13, 55, it says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Those were the names of his brothers. Can you imagine what it would have been like to grow up in the home of Jesus with Joseph and Mary as your parents? I mean, imagine what it would be like to have your big brother, a person who never sinned, never made a mistake. Every time mom called, he came running. Because, you know, to delay is to disobey, and that would be a sin, right? So he was always responsive to have a brother who never had a temper tantrum, who never kicked his sister under the table, who never did anything mean. Can you imagine what that would be like to grow up as siblings to Jesus? And as the first child, he would have set completely unrealistic expectations for all the other children. You imagine how his mom would have said, why can't you be like your older brother? And of course, they weren't full biological siblings. We know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the others were conceived by Joseph. And of course, we know that Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus was special. We know that Mary knew. She knew she was a virgin when she she conceived Jesus. Remember, the angels came to her and told her that she was with child and that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us, that Um, And she responded by saying, may it be to me as you desire. So she had an encounter before Jesus was born that was supernatural. She knew that this was a supernatural child. Um, She knew God had plans for his life, but his siblings didn't understand. To To them, he was just one of their brothers. And they probably never understood why he behaved differently than they did. And in fact, his siblings didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, even once he announced it to the world. Um, James remained an unbeliever or a skeptic through all of his childhood and all of his young adulthood. You can imagine how he probably felt such relief that day that Jesus finally grew up and moved out of the house. Jesus grew up and he moved. And you can imagine James probably felt like, now the pressure's off. It's just us. But then Jesus comes back. He comes back to Nazareth. He comes back to his hometown. And when he comes back, he actually goes into the synagogue. He unrolls a scroll from Isaiah and he pronounces to the world that he is the Messiah. We find it in Luke chapter 4, 16. Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
there was no mistaking the fact that as Jesus was reading the scroll from Isaiah, he was proclaiming this was him. He was the one, the promised Messiah that all of Israel had been waiting for. But his siblings didn't believe him. I mean, what were they to think? This was their brother. This was Jesus. And here he's saying that he's the one. John 7, 5, it says, not even his brothers believed him. And in Mark 3.21, it says that when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. Throughout all of Jesus' earthly life, his brother James remained an unbeliever and a skeptic. But then, after Jesus died and was buried and resurrected... Jesus went to his brother James in his resurrected body before he ascended into heaven and he appeared to him. He met with him. It's amazing that he actually singled out James and went in his resurrected body to see his brother. We find this in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to read this to you because in here, in this passage, not only do we find that Jesus meets with James, but we also understand what James understood when Jesus stood in front of him. It's called the resurrection of Christ. Paul is writing this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the, the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he, also, he appeared also to me. Can you imagine what it was like for James to have Jesus appear to him? James saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw the Messiah. And I can only imagine that Jesus probably just wrapped his loving arms around his brother and lovingly assured him that it was okay. He knew that he hadn't been a believer. He knew that he'd been a skeptic, but he probably just expressed a deep sense of compassion and love for his brother. Jesus surely understood how difficult it would have been to grow up in the same household with the Messiah. How, how mind-boggling it would have been for a child to try to understand all that God had revealed to Mary he didn't understand it. And I think Jesus had great compassion on his brother. How could he have made sense of that kind of growing up experience? And then later, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he had told his disciples that when he ascends, that they're to go and wait in the upper room because he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them on the 50th day on Pentecost. And we find that in that gathering of the upper room, not only are the disciples there, but James is there, and his mother is there, and all the brothers of Jesus are there. So they all believed, and they all were waiting with great anticipation for the Holy Spirit to come after Jesus' ascension. He was a believer, for sure. 
Now, what did James believe? Well, he believed just what Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 15. He believed, I think at that moment, thank you so much, that Jesus had died for his sins. I'm sure James understood better than anyone what it looked like to have a perfectly sinless life because he'd grown up with a brother who had a perfectly sinless life. It probably made him all that much more aware of his own sinfulness. And seeing his brother face-to-face post-resurrection probably all the more convinced him of how much he had fallen short of believing and um, agreeing with God about who Jesus was. And so his heart, I'm sure at that point, was very obviously resistant. I'm sure he saw in those moments the hardness of his own heart, and he felt convicted about that. And yet he think he also understood that Jesus had died for his sins, that, you know, he understood that he was a sinner. You know, same is true for us. Like, we miss the mark. We fall short of God's holy standards. We, too, are sinners. And just as James understood that Jesus had died for his sins, we, too, understand that Jesus has died for our sins, that none of us are good enough to meet God's holy standards. But God has provided a way. He has made a plan to redeem us, just like he made a plan to redeem James. Redeeming as in buying back that which was broken unto himself. And he did that through the cross. He did that by sending his son into the body of a virgin. And he did that by um, Jesus' earthly life, where he explained the mysteries of the kingdom of God, where he did miraculous things, not to dazzle people, but to validate the fact that he is God, that he has power over creation. Um, He authenticated his own words. And amazingly, the Jewish leaders, they didn't receive that. They thought he was blasphemous because he was claiming to be God and they condemned him to die on a cross, which was a Roman way of death that was for only for the vilest of criminals. And so when Jesus died on the cross, James is, I think, finally understanding, oh, this was for me, that you died on the cross for my sins. And James knew because his mother was at the cross, that his body had been taken and put into a tomb and a big stone had been rolled in front, not to keep Jesus from getting out, but to keep people from going in and stealing the body. And then she also knew, as James and the other disciples knew, that the stone after three days had been rolled away and Jesus's body was gone, not so that he could get out, but so people could come in and see that that he had resurrected from the dead. And then as as we learn, he, he appeared to so many people. 500 in one setting, and Peter, and the disciples, and James, he made himself known in his resurrected state. And James was so compelled by all of this to believe and to receive Jesus as his Savior. The moment, I think, that, that I believe Jesus just enveloped him in an embrace and revealed himself, I think in that moment, James believed And he understood that Jesus wasn't his half-brother. Jesus was his Lord and Savior, Messiah. In fact, he uses the term Lord all throughout his letter. He he constantly refers to Jesus as Lord. I think there was a, a radical shift in his understanding of who Jesus was in that moment. And the same is true for us. The minute that we believe, which is just to agree, just to say, you know, God, I agree that what you say in your word is true, about Jesus, the minute we agree, the minute we believe, 
we um, become a believer. We become a Christ follower or a Christian. We agree with what God says about Jesus. And the hard thing for us, though, is that we don't have the advantage of actually seeing him. Don't you think, oh, it would be so easy to believe if I stood in front of Jesus' resurrected body? Wouldn't that be so easy? We don't have that advantage. But, you know, another guy kind of felt that way. His name was Thomas. And he said, well, I won't believe unless I stand in front of Jesus' resurrected body and I can actually put my hand in his wounds or touch his nail holes, and then I'll believe. And Jesus appeared to him and allowed him to do that. But Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us. Blessed are us because we have not seen and yet believed. In fact, today, the way that we come to faith in Jesus is by hearing the word of God and then agreeing that it is so. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that's why we gather for Bible study, isn't it? We want to hear from God. We want to open his word. We want to know him. We want him to reveal himself to us. We want him to speak into who we are in light of him and give us perspective about our world. It's why we come thirsty to open God's word and to hear and believe. And we need encouragement in our belief, right? It's not a one-time transaction. It's a continuous believing, continuous persevering in our faith. Let me ask you, do you agree with God's word, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Have you heard the good news? That's what the word gospel means, good news. Have you heard the good news that Jesus loves you? He loved James, yes, but he loves you and he loves me. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins, which are many, and your sins, which I'm sure are much fewer than mine. But for both of us, he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We could enter into an intimate relationship with holy God. And we are sealed with his Holy Spirit. The moment we believe, the moment we agree that it is so, God gives us this gift of his Holy Spirit, which seals us unto himself. And the Bible tells us that his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We know we're in a familial relationship with God Almighty. It's a miracle. It is an absolute miracle. And this is why it's called the gospel, because it's such good news. Well, when James saw the resurrected Christ and he believed, he believed with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the whole trajectory of his life dramatically changed. Everything from that moment forward in James's life is completely different. And this is why I think he begins his letter in James 1.1 with this sentence. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He introduces himself. He's like, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he reveals himself. And then everything about his life changes. And we can, let me highlight just a few things that we see, which is why we're so convinced that this is the James who wrote this book and this is what he believed. The first thing is we know he wrote the book. He became an author. He became an author in the canon, in the New Testament. Probably we think it's the first book included in the New Testament written at the earliest date in 45 to 49 A.D., He was writing to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout Palestine 
And they had been scattered because Stephen, who was a faithful man of God, had been martyred. He'd been stoned. And that made them afraid and made them scatter to flee persecution. And they were out of their homeland. Think of refugees that come to the United States. Think of what it's like to come to the United States as a refugee. You're out of your homeland. Oftentimes, you you don't speak the language. You don't have your foods and your comforts and your own things. You're living in a foreign place. And these Christians had been scattered because they feared that they would be killed like Stephen was killed. Now, they scatter, and they scatter to places that are now filled with Gentiles. So they've got a double whammy of persecution. They're now living in lands that are filled with Gentiles who hate them. And they're they're Jews, but they're Christian Jews. So their own countrymen don't like them. So they've got this double whammy of persecution. They're having a really hard time, and James is writing to encourage them. He's writing to, to help them. Um, throughout this letter, he's going to be uh, offering God's wisdom to them and help them navigate through their persecution and hardship. Now, the second thing that we see is that James became a leader. He became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, which was the mothership of churches. And Paul even says in Galatians 2.9 that James was a pillar in the church. So he was highly respected, obviously had a huge change in life to become a leader of the church. We also find out that he was a a mediator in a very important decision that was made at the Council of Jerusalem. This was a hotly debated topic, and it was this. If a Gentile becomes a Christian, does that Gentile need to be circumcised like the Jews needed to be circumcised? And the issue at stake was, do do Gentiles have to do something to be saved? And circumcision was a work. And Paul was strongly opinionated that, no, Jesus taught that that salvation was by grace alone, by faith alone, by grace alone through faith alone, and that nothing was required for salvation except to believe. Well, in this council meeting, which was really, really important, James was the guy who cut to the quick, who proclaimed the word of God, and after hearing everybody's sides, was able to bring peace and unity to this conference. And he is, is celebrated in scripture as being the one who brought unity in this very difficult subject. So we see that. We also know that James became a prayer warrior. His nickname is Camel Knees because he had bumps on his knees from always being prostrate before the throne of God praying for people. What a change that was from the skeptic and the unbeliever that was in the earlier days. And lastly, he was martyred for his faith. Historians give us two different accounts of how he died. Um, One account is that he was actually stoned to death for refusing to recant his faith in Jesus. The other account is that he was thrown off the temple from a high place and then was beaten to death with clubs. But both accounts say that James died saying the exact same words that Jesus spoke, which were, was this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That is a man of profound, transforming faith. So from the moment James believed, he devoted the rest of his life to serving his Lord and Savior, and his genuine faith compelled him to change not only his attitudes, but his actions. So what does James want us to know? Well, it's interesting. He, I feel like he has a voice worth listening to because when we look at his life, 
what we see is that he lived out exactly what he's going to be preaching to us. Because he wants us to know that belief dictates behavior. He wants us to know that what we believe actually will determine how we behave in life, how we act. You know, you know that like if you have a really hot pan in the oven, you are not going to reach in with your bare hands to grab that pan, right? Because you know you're going to get burnt. Or if, you ha- if your neighbor's dog bites, you're not going to reach in to try to pet your neighbor's dog because you know it's going to bite. We live our whole lives based on the realities that we assess to be true. We, we behave according to what we believe to be true. But for some reason, we can believe that things are true in God's word and then not actually live like it. We can believe it on Sunday morning and then we can go out on Monday and live a completely different life as if it doesn't really matter. And James is saying, no, it matters. It really matters. Genuine faith, he believes, is evidenced in acts of obedience. James is convinced that there is a relationship between faith and works. And he, we know he does not believe that salvation is ever achieved by works, but he believes that once a person is saved, once a person is in a relationship with God, that will manifest itself in the ways that we live our lives. It will actually make a difference. He actually, obedience, in, there's 108 verses in the book of James, and in 59 of those verses, he is actually giving commands not guidelines and not suggestions, but commands. He's telling us how it is. But he was a guy who was all in. So I feel like we can listen to him for that reason. Obedience is the, is the binding thread throughout all of James' writing. And he also believes that, um, that for a believer who is obedient, that actually it will make this huge difference in how our families, what happens in our families, in our communities, in our cities, in our country, in our world. He believes that believers who obey the word of God will actually make a huge impact in the world, that the light of Christ will be seen through our lives. The other thing he believes is that spiritual maturity is the natural result of a growing faith. He, I think... This whole study, he's going to be telling us to put our big girl pants on. He's going to tell us it's time to grow up. Um, And we know that, of course, it's not possible to grow up unless you've been born first, right? So it's important that we have spiritual birth before we're able to have spiritual maturity. Just like a a baby has two parents, uh, a spiritual baby and, and a spiritual child has two nurturers, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God work together to help grow us into maturity and faith. And then that happens as we study and as we pray and as we worship and fellowship and serve and live out this life of faith. That's how we grow in wisdom and assurance of God's goodness and trustworthiness. The other thing he wants us to know is that more tests and trials and temptations are coming. You know, don't I wish that when my boys were little toddlers that I could have just told them in those days, hey, life is going to get so much easier. As they're throwing temper tantrums or they're, they're, they're being, you know, toddlers, you know, I wish I could have said, it's okay. This is just the hardest part of your life. It's going to be all easy from here. But I knew that high school and junior high were going to be a lot harder, right? And in, when my boys were in junior high and high school, I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I spent 
praying for them, praying that they wouldn't succumb to peer pressure, praying that they wouldn't have, be lonely and not have friends, you know, praying that they wouldn't be discouraged by things that happened. You know, it was brutal. And I wish then I could have told them, it's okay. It only gets better from here. But the reality is then you grow up and what happens? You've got marriages that are difficult and children to raise and jobs that are stressful and you've got to provide for yourself and financial pressure and you have health issues and people that you love that pass away. I mean, it only gets more difficult. That's part of growing up. And, and James knows that. He knows that we need to grow up and that doesn't mean it's going to be easier. There is a pain associated with growing up, but there also is a joy and a blessing that comes in maturity. There's this blessing that comes when you know how trustworthy and faithful God is. When you've lived some life and you've seen him. Sometimes they say that, that we don't really know the grace of God until we're in a really difficult time. God uses our adversities to glorify himself and to draw us deeper into relationship with him. So there's a blessing in that. But we also know, and he's going to point out, that in this journey of life that we go in, go, that we are traveling together, there's also spiritual adversity. You know, there is a real enemy that's seeking to discourage us, seeking to, dis, to uh, generate blame and shame. And then we have our own fleshly nature that does a really good job of that too. So there's a lot of hardship in life. But James wants us to know that these tests, trials, and temptations are part of the maturing process. And he wants us to be ready and aware so that we're not overcome. So, Summary, let's tie it all together. Who is James? I think we can very surely say James is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, they share the same mother. Obviously, they've got very different fathers. What does James believe? James believes, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the promised Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the miracle maker, he is God. He believes that, and it's evident in how his whole life changed because of that reality. And what does James want us to know? He wants us to know that our outward actions reflect the inward reality of our faith. He wants us to know, hey, there is a relationship between what you believe and how you live your life. And sometimes you just look at how you live your life to understand what you really believe. So that's what I think we can learn from this just review of James' life. It's very personal. It's, it's your, your outward actions reflect the reality of your faith. And my outward actions reflect the reality of my faith. So let me ask you just to reflect for just a moment. What is the inward reality of your faith? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? who died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, personally, your sins, my sins. Do you believe that? Have you confessed this faith to God? Have you said, God, I agree with you. Yes, I believe. And have you received the gift of his Holy Spirit? There is a difference between intellectual assent and a living relationship with God. An intellectual assent is a box that's checked. It's a data point among other data points. Yes, I know it's true historically. It's very different when you actually turn your heart to God and you say, I actually really believe this and I want you to be Lord of my life. 
I believe that you are the living God, and I want you to be Lord of my life. There's a personal relationship that happens, and it's an invitation that God gives to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then let me ask you this. What are the outward actions of your life? Do they reflect your genuine faith? Will you allow God's spirit this year to really convict you of sin? We don't really like to grow up sometimes, do we? We don't like when the spotlight comes on our hearts as James is going to do and convict us about our tongues and about our foolishness and about our our, our prejudice, our disunity. These are things that are going to, to feel uncomfortable at times. But if we allow God to shine the light on these dark places in our own hearts, we will find that there will be grace for us and there will be forgiveness for us and there will be maturing for us, which is the whole point of this letter. So will you agree with James that it's time for us to grow up in wisdom and maturity and become the women of faith that God destines us to be? That's who I want to be. I want to get to the end of my life and meet Jesus face to face and be a mature person in, in Christ. I don't want to be still sucking on a bottle, which I don't think I am. <laughs> but I want to be eating meat, right? I want to be feasting at the table as a mature woman who's walked faithfully with God all the days of my life. And I hope that we can do that together. So let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for this letter that is sharing so much wisdom with us about how to live our lives in a broken world in 2019. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you. We desperately need to encounter you as we open your word. We need your spirit to spotlight things in our own lives that we need to confess to you and draw near to you about, to receive your forgiveness and grace and to grow up. I'm so grateful that James lived this out in his own life. He was all in. And I'm so grateful for the ways in which his life was transformed and how inspiring that is to us to know that an encounter with Jesus is life transforming. And so, Lord, I pray that we would become women who live out a life that is congruent with the faith that we profess and that we would be salt and light in the world and in the places where you've planted us. We need your help So, Lord, would you please help us? And we ask this in the name and the fame of Jesus. Amen.